Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, this is Noelle Jafrida, and I'm the host of New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Andrew McClellan about his new book called The Art of Curating, Paul J. Sachs and the Museum Course at Harvard, which was published by the Getty Research Institute in 2018. This book, co-authored with Sally Ann Duncan, offers a behind-the-scenes exploration of the career of Paul Sachs and the graduate program he developed at Harvard University and the Fogg Museum that came to be known as the Museum Course. Sachs and the Course played a major role in training students who became museum directors and curators at American art museums from the late 1920s all the way through the 1960s. By drawing upon archival correspondence, class notes, and oral histories, the art of curating delves into the practical training in connoisseurship, the art market, exhibition planning, conservation, and financial management, as well as the philosophical discussions that made up the class. Participants' training and insider connections gained at Harvard had a profound impact on the development of American art museums in the first half of the 20th century. While the book looks into some of the male students that went on to distinguished careers, it also looks at lesser-known men and women who took the course and the challenges they faced in terms of museum positions that were open to them at the time. Now, this book is a compelling read for curators, academic art historians, museum study scholars, and anyone interested in the history of art museums, the people behind them, and the historiography of art history. Andrew McClellan, welcome to the show. Would you begin by telling us about the origins of this project and how it eventually came to fruition? This book is a continuation of earlier interests that go right back to my dissertation, which was about the origins of the Louvre Museum in Paris. So I've stayed within museums, but moved for the time being, at least into the 20th and even 21st century and uh, across the Atlantic to the United States. Um, 
I should say, I'd like to say right uh, up front that the the book uh, we're talking about today, the Sachs book, is a collaborative effort, and it was begun as a PhD dissertation by a former student who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, before she had a chance to revise it and publish it. So this is a co-authored book, and um, uh, the dissertation itself was you know, sort of an outgrowth of my own interest and expertise in, in museums. Wonderful. I was going to ask you about the origins of the project um, and how it eventually came to fruition. So you mentioned um, uh, Sally Ann Duncan, who was your student who began this project, and I believe her dissertation was in 2002. Is that right? Yes. Right. Um, so can you can you talk a little bit about um, sort of how it came to fruition from uh, her dissertation to this eventual book? Sally originally came to Tufts as a master's student, and uh, she had for many years done other things in her life, and she wanted to uh, come back to uh, do academic work at the graduate level. And she had an interest in writing about Sachs from the get-go. It uh, happens that Sally was Paul Sachs's granddaughter, uh, actually, uh, and she wanted to uh, explore this topic in an academic and intellectual way. And uh, I, I was keen to, to bring her on in order to do that work, so long as what she had in mind wasn't a pure celebration or hagiography of uh, her grandfather. I made it clear that that's not the kind of work that I would encourage her to do. And nor was that what she wanted to do. She wasn't uh, especially close to him. She was just fascinated, I think, by the impact that he had and the whole issue of social and professional networks as related to the museum field. So she wrote her master's thesis and uh, she decided that she had much more to say. And so she stayed on to uh, do a PhD. And uh, she finished that in 2002. She then started working and started thinking about turning the dissertation into a book, but uh, as I say in the in the preface, she uh, got cancer and uh, and passed away. And so uh, at that late stage, I agreed to take it over and to uh, turn it into a book, which took me a lot longer and required a good deal more effort than I had anticipated. I was busy with other things myself, and so it took time to turn get, get around to it. And uh, when I did get around to it, as I say, it was a more complicated undertaking than I had imagined. So it, it took some time, long story short. So um, can you describe some of the primary sources that were tapped for researching this book? Um, I noticed in uh, a lot of the notes and commentary that uh, it's not just from public archives. There's a lot of private material and um, oral histories and things that were preserved by the students in the class that uh, were fodder for the book. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, we, there was a trove of material at Harvard, in particular, which we took full advantage of. Uh, in particular, an immense correspondence between Sachs and his students. One of the remarkable things, I think, about the course, the museum course and uh, Paul Sachs, 
himself was that he stayed in close touch with his students across his and their lifetimes. And uh, uh, there's a very uh, deep archive of personal letters to and from Sachs at Harvard, which are all um, meticulously organized and filed. Um, my thanks to the archivists there. They're wonderful. Sally uh, was well aware of that material and, and used it uh, expertly uh, in her dissertation. And when I came to revise and reformat the whole book, I, I basically read everything that Sally had used and, and then some actually in, in what I myself added. Uh, and so the letters were a primary source of material, but also important were the copies of museum course notes. That is to say, we know about what happened in the course because each class within the course from year to year was transcribed by Sachs's secretary to form a kind of um, dossier, I suppose, uh, a record of the class throughout the year. And these were distributed to students as a permanent record of what they had learned and what they had talked about. And uh, many students kept these notes throughout their lives, and they made their way into one archive or another. So uh, Harvard actually doesn't have much of this material at all, but the Archives of American Art has some. And uh, the Getty Research Institute itself uh, has a large number of them. So those are really the two most important archival uh, sources for the course. And it was a question of reading through this material, absorbing it, synthesizing it, and then uh, processing it into a, a coherent narrative that made sense of what the course set out to do and eventually achieved. Wonderful. Yeah, these are all uh, terrific resources. And I think a lot of the um, books like yours that are being written now really rely on these uh, written records that now in the age of email correspondence, we wonder uh, what will be preserved for the next generation writing about things going on right now. It does make you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> So um, Paul Sachs obviously is is elemental to the book and to the museum course. Can you say a little about about his uh, family background, his cultural background, and his uh, Jewish heritage? Chapter one is basically an intellectual biography of Paul Sachs, if I can use that sort of elevated term. But it deals with his uh, family background. He was the scion of a uh, powerful, wealthy. German Jewish New York family and Paul Sachs. Uh, the name will be familiar to many. He uh, is the Sachs of Goldman Sachs eventually. And uh, he grew up in a, a highly educated, highly refined uh, German Jewish community in New York City uh, and was essentially groomed to take over the family business as the uh, eldest son. He went to Harvard, as was expected of someone of his class. We can talk a little bit about uh, the restrictions on his life that came from his faith. But he uh, went to Harvard and duly took his place in the family business. Uh, but he was never really suited to it, or he didn't, he didn't want that life, shall we say. Uh, and through sort of a, a wonderful sort of pas de deux kind of um, maneuvering process between himself and uh, the director of the F uh, Fogg Art Museum at Harvard, 
uh, he came to uh, join the Fog staff, sort of uh, in in early middle age, uh, shall we say, and uh, the rest uh, is is history. I think the key components, though, of his early life were a, uh, a fabulous and rigorous education, and the training, shall we say, the inculcation of business habits and uh, financial ways of being uh, in New York City. And he transferred these executive skills, these management skills, the financial acumen uh, to the um, Harvard Museums, for one thing, but then through the course that he taught more generally into the bloodstream of uh, the American Museum. Can you say a little bit about his experience as a collector, both um, sort of shadowing collectors in New York uh, and in their travels in Europe, and then his own um, history of collecting? Yes, thank you. It's vitally important. Uh, uh, Sachs was a uh, an art an art history student at Harvard, and uh, in his oral biography, he talks about a childhood fascination with images. He used to sort of cut out magazine reproductions of works of art and put them on his wall. Uh, and he liked to say that that childhood experience was eventually replaced by putting real works of art on the walls of his own home and the, and the walls of the uh, Harvard Art Museum. But it was a lifelong uh, attachment to art, uh, followed through with and backed up by education at Harvard. And then when he went to work in New York City at, at uh, Goldman Sachs, he spent his spare time uh, browsing the print shops, prints and drawing shops. I mean, he didn't have a lot of money when he was younger, so he, he wasn't in the big game world of uh, old master paintings, but he um, learned from the ground up the, the sort of practice of, of connoisseurship and collecting, and through those channels eventually met uh, a large number of uh, collectors and connoisseurs uh, in New York City. He likes to say, uh, likes to remind people, uh, uh, and he did this in his class, but also in his uh, memoir, that he uh, was on hand to witness the formation of some of the most powerful collections in American history, Benjamin Altman, uh, the Lehman family, uh, the Goldmans uh, were also uh, quite large-scale collectors. So he, he grew up in the, uh, a world, a sort of an ambience, if you will, of um, where money and collecting uh, intersect, where business and collecting intersect. And that was interesting in itself, but also very important because he could see that the future of the American Museum relied on this intersection of money, philanthropy, collecting, and love of art. He could see what was going to happen with the Altman collection, for example, going to the Metropolitan Museum. And he realized that museums in the United States would flourish so long as they were able to tap the, uh, the generosity, if you will, uh, and the, the self-importance uh, at the same time of uh, the people who were beginning to uh, collect on a large scale. Wonderful. Um, so in talking about um, the beginnings of the museum course, um, you spend some time um, describing what's going on in the United States in terms of the development of museums and the rise of philanthropy that helped um, spur the need and eventually um, the initiation of the museum course. I wonder if you could say a few words about that. Right. 
Well, when Sachs arrived at Harvard in 1916, it was already uh, apparent that the growth and development of museums in the country greatly outstripped the uh, personnel that was on hand to manage and, and develop the museum itself. There was, uh, for many years, going uh, back into the first years of the 20th century, the uh, Association of American Museums, the AAM, had uh, routinely, year in, year out, uh, insisted that uh, more training uh, was was greatly needed. For uh, example, in 1925, at an AAM meeting, and not for the first time, the association uh, delivered a statement that the training of curators and administrators is doubtless the most vital problem before us. Uh, I think it's easy to lose sight of how underdeveloped or immature the American museumscape was just a century uh, ago. In the book, uh, we found some, uh, well, I found some wonderful photographs of what happened in Kansas City at the Nelson Atkins Museum, what is now the Nelson Atkins Museum, sort of before and after photographs that show that the museum was essentially built from the ground up and opened within a space of three years. And uh, it required absolutely everything to be done. There was nobody on hand in Kansas City to manage this process and then to uh, take it from opening to what it's become today. And uh, it so happens that all of the early people that were responsible for getting the Nelson Atkins off the ground were uh, SAC students. But it's a, it's a wonderful sort of condensed illustration, if you will, of the uh, the rawness of uh, culture in the United States and the, the great need of uh, burgeoning and fledgling institutions to um, acquire trained uh, personnel. And it, it wasn't just new museums like the one in Kansas City, uh, but it was also some older institutions that were in great need of modernization. Uh, and Sachs saw all this happening across the country and uh, he realized that it was crucial that uh, training happen, and he uh, rightly argued that Harvard would be the, uh, the place for it. And the philanthropy thing is also interesting because not only did Sachs rub shoulders with wealthy bankers and businessmen and collectors in New York, but he was also uh, connected to the Carnegie Corporation in particular through, um, actually through one of his collector friends, his brother, uh, he was a dealer, a uh, 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 friend of his who was a dealer and a collector. His brother was uh, head of the Carnegie Foundation. And uh, Sachs successfully sort of tapped the, the Carnegie for uh, essential money for the training of uh, museum uh, personnel. It's almost like he turned the Carnegie on to the potential of museums to contribute to a kind of large civic and uh, educational force uh, in our country. Uh, and so it was this world of philanthropy and business and money and art that uh, was really something that Sachs was able to bring to the Brahmin Ivy League enclave uh, that was Harvard. Uh, and that was the genius of the director of the Fogg Museum, Edward Forbes, you know, who realized the potential through Sachs of tapping the know-how, expertise, social networks, as well as um, capital that was uh, in, in New York City. 
Thank you. Can you say a few words? Um, I know there's a lot less information on this, but you mention in the book um, several programs, um, not necessarily formal courses, but programs with collaborating museums and individuals that were initiated in the late 1920s that didn't uh, eventually stay around or have nearly the impact of the museum course. Right. So as a result or of the product of constant demands on the part of the museum world for trained personnel, you see these upstart courses happening here and there, mostly on the East Coast, that never took hold. And I think the the reason they didn't take hold was that they had insufficient institutional backing. Uh, You needed to combine the, the sort of bring together the expertise that already existed in museums with the training potential of a university. And these relationships really weren't easy to uh, establish. Um, We might sort of consider what's going on right now, actually, with the Mellon Foundation initiative of trying to bring universities and museums to do much the same thing that was needed a century ago uh, all over again. But in the early 20th century, those connections weren't there. Uh, Museums were too busy to educate, and they didn't have the resources to do so. Universities, by and large, didn't have museums on hand in order to act as a kind of practical laboratory for applied learning. The uh, reason why Harvard worked was in large part because it realized that deficit, that sort of asymmetry of, of, of expertise, if you will, and set about making itself the prime example of a kind of a collaborative environment between all the things that universities are good at doing and all the things that museums needed and uh, were, were doing. Uh, so the Fogg Museum, now just the Harvard Art Museum, was built as a kind of model enterprise, bringing uh, education and museum work uh, together under one roof. Uh, Sachs and his colleagues at Harvard described the museum in the 1920s as a laboratory uh, for the fine arts. Uh, and it was a sense, you know, in which uh, it was uh, for experimentation and the development, if you will, of, of the museum and the museum's skills. Uh, and that's precisely what, you know, a university-based museum could do in a way that other places simply couldn't. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
Right. Yeah. We now think about, as you mentioned, the the Mellon initiatives, which has sought to bring uh, large municipal museums like the Metropolitan or the Art Institute of Chicago or the Cleveland Museum of Art into a sort of collaboration with nearby university programs and the challenges of a huge a city museum and a university collaboration uh, still remains a challenge in a way that a university museum and a, and an accompanying art history or museum studies program doesn't. So I think it's uh, this book is really relevant to some of the challenges that um, we're facing today in museums and uh, university relations. Right. I mean, Carnegie was to the 1920s, 30s, and beyond uh, what Mellon is today. Uh, it, it, it's, it's very interesting to see the, the parallels between them and a reminder, really, of how vitally important uh, philanthropic foundations are to the cultural life of our country. So um, the museum course itself is a fascinating thing. Um, I love that the appendix um, or the multiple appendices to the book include um, – uh, the assignments, uh, some of the things that the students are asked to do, um, as well as uh, you refer to a lot of the readings and discussions they had. So the full name of the course was Museum Work and Museum Problems, uh, which began in uh, 1926. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what kinds of assignments uh, the museum uh, course students did? Um, there are several um, really uh, very interesting ones uh, that you describe in some detail in the book. Well, there, it, it, it was uh, very thorough and wide-ranging. Uh, he started them off, he started the students off by doing rather dry work about reading about the history and profiles of uh, existing museums uh, because he believed that, you know, the museum, the world was a community and it was important to, to know what other museums were doing. I mean, part of the task of professionalization in the early 20th century was to establish consistent practices across institutions, both in this country, but also between the United States uh, and Europe. So it was, as I say, sort of dry work, really, looking up, you know, what museums were up to, who were their staff, what were their strengths. Uh, students didn't particularly enjoy that kind of work. Um, and he also had them do in-depth research and bibliographies on obscure uh, topics, you know, sort of Persian carpets, you know, uh, 17th century European ivory sculptures, uh, you name it. Uh, he almost went out of his way to find obscure topics just to test the, the extent to which they could source information uh, in the belief that one day curators would have to, would encounter uh, a full range of objects that they had to know how to um, uh, research on their own. Uh, more interesting work, though, uh, was uh, the the beginnings and really at the heart of the course, I would say, in the end, was uh, understanding the museum world through a kind of structural look at the essential players on the American scene, collectors, existing direct uh, directors, where money would come from, how you work with local businesses. And uh, in that part of the course, Sachs drew heavily on his own experience, both past and present. He stayed very much in contact with uh, you know, crucial players in the art world. He had a huge 
Rolodex on his desk that he kept uh, refreshed with information on a regular basis. He traveled a lot. He, he went back to New York virtually every weekend. And on his visits, he had long lists of people to go and see. So he cultivated his sources and his contacts assiduously. Uh, and he shared all this information with the students so that they felt like they were, through him, vicariously, almost living the day-to-day -day world of high-powered collectors and uh, financiers. So that was a very interesting part of the course. And I should say that uh, the reason why, it, 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 as famous as the course is and was, why up till now not much was known about the actual uh, curriculum was that uh, Sachs asked the students to keep what was discussed in class confidential, and they honored that request. And so they didn't tell people on the outside world. They didn't write letters. They didn't sort of talk to the press about what happened in the class. And um, the reason for that secrecy was that Sachs felt that it was vitally important that he uh, sort of uh, be candid about what happened in the art world. He shared privileged information with his students, but of course, he didn't really want to have that information get out. I mean, he was quite prepared to say quite mean things about very prominent collectors that he would have been very happy to engage with socially, but he certainly didn't want it getting back to those people that he was telling students that, you know, the collection that person X had formed was really second rate. Uh, and uh, in addition to that sort of behind the scenes look at the nuts and bolts of the art world, the other major preoccupation of the course was um, learning how to work with pictures, uh, how you acquire pictures, how you authenticate pictures, how you display pictures, how you make them uh, into um, important sources of, of both education and um, delight, if you will, through the process of exhibitions. So there were numerous exercises across the year that got to that working relationship with actual works of art. So on the one hand, it was a uh, constant process of learning how to become a connoisseur, the refinement of the eye, the inculcation of habits that would settle into a kind of professional practice that might last across a lifetime. That was crucial. And at the same time, okay, once you've acquired these things, uh, how do you make them tell? How do you make them work within an institutional uh, framework? So uh, managing the conservation aspect of it uh, and the, uh, the, the exhibition aspect of it, permanent collections, temporary exhibitions, um, these were also uh, hugely important. So, I mean, I could, you know, there are lots of other little details around the edges, but I think that's the sort of the, the essential drift of the course. I think one of, uh, two of the things I think would be worth mentioning just briefly, um, just because they are sort of practical exercises that I think have fallen by the wayside um, today. And that is that you mentioned that he would have them work on obscure uh, topics and pieces as if he were asking them to prepare a presentation for his acquisition committee, um, something that they would have to convince people to purchase for the museum. Um, he also had them do um, a buying assignment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
that the, the buying thing didn't come in till very uh, late in the in, in in the course, but it was something that uh, I think really stuck and spoke to. It really put in practice what he had always uh, insisted was uh, very important. That's to say, um, understanding art in relation to the market. Uh, so you had to be able to spot quality, as he would have put it. You had to be able to determine authenticity, again, the essential building blocks of connoisseurship. But another element that was very important was understanding uh, the what, if you were on the market, in the market, buying, uh, so forth, whether you were getting something at a good price. Uh, what was the relationship between quality and cost, uh, you might say? Uh, so he had numerous exercises uh, around that. I mean, he would always bring in, you know, headlines from recent newspapers. So, you know, it, when Andrew Mellon went out and spent $35 million on, uh, I think, just 19 paintings sometime in the 1930s, he would say to the class, so, class, what do you think of this purchase? Do you think he did well for his $35 million? He spent, you know, X billion alone on that painting by Raphael. Could he have done better? Could he have gotten something of equal quality for less money? And he would hold up other examples of works of art that have been acquired from museums and say, uh, I think this was a mistake. I think these things are not worth what the museum paid for. And the mantra was always go for quality, quality over quantity. So the buying exercise towards the end of the course put students to uh, a real-world test, and he would uh, basically say to them, here, here's $50. Go into Boston and bring back a work of art that you have found for $50 or less. And so they would do that, I'm sure extremely anxiety-producing, and at the, uh, the end of the assignment, he would bring all the objects together and they would decide collectively with curatorial input from the people at the, at the Fogg Museum who had done uh, the best job for uh, the money. Um, and then for a while, the students were allowed to keep the object, actually. Uh, that kind of went back and forth between the Fogg keeping it and then the students keeping it. And uh, um, I forget exactly when that, that switchover happened. Uh, but it was, you know, putting people uh, on on the line, um, and that that test actually was taken over and implemented in the 1960s uh, at New York University, which becomes the kind of main successor to the Harvard program, as the Har Harvard program uh, was uh, winding down. So it had some it had some legs. Now you talked a, a quite a bit in the book about the importance of connoisseurship and uh, how that was really important uh, to Sachs and others involved in the course, that students really learn to spot quality and know the market. Can you talk a little bit about the role of Jacob Rosenberg, who joined the um, in teaching the museum course in the late 1930s? Sure. So, I mean, again, let's. I think it can't be emphasized enough that the um, one of the central tasks of the museum course of museum training was the um, elaboration of a set of skills and attitudes that uh, uh, became sort of professional connoisseurship um, practiced by curators. Through the 20s and 30s, 
American museums were in a phase of accumulation, we might say. They had to build collections. They wanted to rival the museums of Europe, and they had to wade into very tricky waters with uh, a growing market, of course, uh, is rife with fakes and um, misattributed paintings. So it was a minefield out there. Um, even taking objects from collectors that had been generously attributed by collectors, you had to work through all this, and it required uh, it required a lot. It required a lot of skill. It, it was it, there were risks involved. So from the get go, uh, the inculcation of refined habits, I would say, was the, uh, was the ultimate goal. And Sachs wanted to believe that connoisseurship was teachable. And that was a somewhat debatable point at the time. Uh, after all, if you take someone like Bernard Berenson or Joseph Devine, the great dealer, you know, it was in their interest to make connoisseurship seem inscrutable and ineffable, the process of innate skills that no one else had. And it was precisely the promotion of those skills on their part that, you know, uh, was the source of their business enterprise. Sachs, on the other hand, wanted to demystify connoisseurship and to insist that it was teachable and to show exactly how one did that. And uh, Rosenberg, who came on board in the 30s as a German uh, Jewish refugee, the rise of Nazism in Germany, was a perfect match for Sachs because he was an academic. He had um, many articles and a PhD to his name. Sachs did not. Uh, he was no scholar and he knew it ultimately. But he had also, Rosenberg that is, had had elite training at the museums of Berlin under Wilhelm von Bode and so had an international reputation as a connoisseur. And uh, it really sort of beefed up the program, if you will, uh, in terms of substance and also reputation when Rosenberg uh, joined uh, the, the Fogg staff. And in fact, when Rosenberg arrived in the late 30s, he began to elaborate a sort of a schema, if you will, of, uh, of connoisseurship. Uh, and he uh, taught connoisseurship through comparative analysis of uh, works of art, actual works of art, but also photographs. Uh, often using sort of famous master and lesser follower kind of models to to illustrate how one person was better at drawing a nose than the other, uh, those kinds of, of, of exercises. And uh, Rosenberg eventually published uh, the, uh, the, the heart of that material uh, in a book called On Quality and Art uh, in 1965. But he, 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 he brought a, a sort of a teachable method, if you will, uh, to Harvard that uh, rendered the whole process of becoming a connoisseur uh, more um, uh, transparent and, and and methodized, if you uh, if you will. So that was his chief uh, contribution to the Harvard program. Now, in addition to the practical training and sort of insider knowledge that uh, Sachs and others brought to the museum course, um, there were also discussions of issues and scholarship uh, that came up, everything from whether museums should collect contemporary art, uh, how people felt about period rooms, and uh, different perspectives on the role of education and preservation in the museum. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how the museum course incorporated those kinds of issues. Yes, right. Um, 
yeah, uh, very important, especially earlier in the in the program. I think if you look back to the history of American museums in the twenties and thirties, uh, it was almost like the the future and the character of the American museum was was up for grabs. I mean, you had on the one hand, you know, the the interests of collectors and 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 connoisseurs who were funneling work into the museum, but this was also the 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 era of the big deal and civic programs, social programs, educational initiatives. And uh, Sachs had to sort of find a, a way through those competing agendas, uh, you might say, uh, in those decades. And so uh, issues of, of, well, what it's fine if you collect all this stuff under one roof, but what are you going to do with it? How do you, how do you sort of uh, transform that raw material into something that could be socially useful? So it engendered a, a number of ba- debates uh, out, out there in the world that came into the classroom uh, through Sachs. He himself had a conservative view of a lot of these issues, um, but he, uh, in theory at least, encouraged open discussion and debate uh, around those issues so that students, when they left Harvard and went out into the museum field, would be aware of uh, where, there were the, where there was potential for disagreement, controversy, uh, what have you. Uh, in, in essence, he, he, he prepared students sort of intellectually as well as practically for uh, the, the work in museums. So he, he, you mentioned contemporary art and period rooms. Those were key kind of um, points of dispute in the 1930s. And uh, he had his very strong views uh, on both subjects, as I, as I mentioned before. But he, he wanted students to hash them out for, uh, uh, for themselves so he set up debates between, you know, he said, okay, you take the view of, you know, you, this half of the class, you go off and work up an argument in favor of period rooms. The other half of the class go up and do the opposite. Uh, and he would routinely do that uh, around in, in important topics. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, that, that those, those things really uh, had impact on the field. I mean, if we think about contemporary art, um, we're, we're coming up against the legacy of, of uh, that particular argument uh, for and against the inclusion of contemporary art right now, when contemporary art is, of course, a driving force uh, in the museum world and in in academia. And Sachs was against collecting contemporary art, and a number of his students were were, were of like mind. And so the whole idea, the whole reason why the Metropolitan Museum only recently started collecting contemporary art was because so many of his students had basically institutionalized the view that it wasn't a good thing to do. Uh, and this very complex arrangement that existed for years between the Museum of Modern Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where there was deep ambivalence on the part of MoMA uh, about how permanent a collection of contemporary, i.e. modern art, should be collected, um, you know, uh, is an interesting history uh, of its own. Wonderful. Well, that's a great way to segue into my um, next set of questions, which is really about um, students in the class. Um, Hundreds of of students took the class um, over its long history. Um, You discussed some of the the better known students that uh, people who follow museums or uh, are in art history or curators uh, probably know about, and many that uh, people probably don't know about. You just mentioned the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, and um, Alfred Barr was one of uh, Sachs' students. Can you talk about a couple of his other um, more famous students that were museum directors um, and how their experience with Sachs and the course uh, shape their careers. 
it, he left an indelible mark on the people that he taught. Uh, when he died in 1965, many of them came back and gave tributes, and you felt the the depth of his influence in, in some of the remarks that, that were made. I mean, uh, if you looked across the museum world in the 1950s, uh, you know, every other major museum was directed at the time and was, you know, their curatorial ranks were, were full of SAC students. There are almost uh, too many to, to name. But, uh, uh, and the other th interesting thing was that the people, uh, for example, Perry Rathbone, who was an important director uh, in the 50s and 60s, um, move from one museum to, to another. There's a lot of fluidity in the museum world, as, as we know. Uh, directors, you know, stay a short number of years and, and they move on. And so a guy, a man like Terry Rathbone went from St. Louis to, to Boston, having been at Detroit before that. And uh, everywhere you went, you kind of took a sort of an influence with you. So, it, you know, it wasn't like you st stayed in one place and, and had an influence on that institution there was a sort of a permeability to the whole system uh, that, that allowed for a sort of a, an extra influence to be uh, brought to bear. Uh, Otto Whitman, for example, uh, is somebody that Sally uh, Duncan wrote a lot about. He was a longtime director at the Toledo Museum in Ohio, having been at Kansas City earlier in his career. Uh, and... Uh, when he uh, left Toledo, when he retired, he was brought out to Los Angeles to fix the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which was struggling to gain an identity and had trustee problems and so forth. And uh, no sooner had he done that than he was taken on by the Getty Museum in the early 1980s, which was in the process of, of, of trying to establish itself. And you know, many cornerstones of the uh, Getty's policies were um, uh, molded by uh, a man like Otto Whitman. Um, you don't find much evidence of that today if you visit the museum, but it's there in the, uh, the, the directives and the policies which gave the museum life. Uh, many, many directors across the century whose names are, are barely recorded today, nevertheless left an indelible stamp uh, on the institution. But if I can just sort of, you know, m move on and, and just say that as important and interesting as those lives were, and, and really the book wouldn't have made sense unless he'd had that significant impact, I was struck and moved actually by the stories uh, contained in the personal letters of people who didn't make it or who had smaller careers. And I was fascinated to you know, understand what, what was it that you know, counted on the one hand for a successful career and on the other for one that never quite rose to prominence. Uh, and that led me to look very hard at uh, uh, a score of people uh, whose names are even more obscure, <laughs> um, women in particular, who um, you know, were held back by uh, prejudice uh, 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 in gender, but also in, in ethnicity and, and class. So I think uh, really one of the interesting contributions you know, of the book is to get a sense of, of who made up the museum world across the middle of the 20th century, and uh, what were the social markers, if you will, what were the distinguishing traits of a successful uh, museum person, and what can we tell about the profession uh, from those traits?
Well, one thing I really found um, somewhat surprising about the book was um, how many women were involved in taking the course uh, very early on. Um, probably about a third of the class at, at certain points were women. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. Paul Sachs apparently was very supportive of trying to get them positions in other places, um, whether it be a curatorial position, or in some cases, he even argued for some of them to be appointed uh, directors at museums. But he was very honest about the challenges that they would face in um, getting jobs and, and moving up in in the ranks in museums. And yet he did um, seem to have a way of placing his students, both male and female, in in museums so they would have some sort of career. Yes, he did. I mean, as I said before, he, he is, he was uh, essentially conservative by nature. So he wasn't out to you know, entirely reform the American museum system. That said, he was re remarkably supportive of women, despite the fact that it was clear to everyone uh, that there were limited career paths for uh, female students. So he did what he could. Uh, the, the ones who were successful, uh, you know, one would say um, they had success within a certain kind of constrained uh, framework. So, you know, you, you would not become the director of a major museum if you were a woman. You wouldn't even become the chief curator of paintings if you were uh, a museum. There was a hierarchy. So the successful women tended to end up in prints and drawings department or textiles departments or decorative arts departments at the lower uh, rungs of the museum echelon. Uh, many went into education and behind-the-scenes uh, management. Also significant is that the, the more successful students among his uh, graduates uh, remained single throughout their lives, and there was a sort of incompatibility between um, family life and professional life uh, for, for many decades, which, of course, women still struggle with. So one of the things that um, you're very specific about um, contributing after, um, you know, when you were doing the revisions to the dissertation and creating this book, that you wanted to talk about the legacy of the program in the later years, which Sally Ann really didn't talk too much about in her dissertation. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what happened to the museum course after Sachs retired in 1948 and what factors contributed to the ultimate end of, of the course um, at Harvard? Right. Well, you know, history is really only of interest to the extent that it concerns, you know, what we're dealing with today. Uh, and so I was very interested in, in, in looking backwards from our present moment on the course in general which meant taking it beyond the end point of Sachs's own teaching career in 1948 uh, to uh, what happened, the aftermath, if you will, of Sachs's involvement in the continuation of the course into the 50s and 60s. And that was a very interesting story in and of itself. Uh, it carried on strongly uh, with Jakob Rosenberg, uh, stayed on and taught into the 1960s. And... Uh, Sachs and Forbes' successor as director of the museum, John Coolidge, uh, remained in charge of the program also into the 1960s. So it, it carried on. But I think the, the reasons uh, for change were, firstly, you know, as often happens, it, the success of the course depended a great deal on the personality and enthusiasm of Paul Sachs himself. 
And he put his life and soul into that program. Uh, he taught other classes, but that was clearly his primary interest. Uh, and once he withdrew from the program, a kind of a loss of energy uh, ensued almost inevitably. John Coolidge was an architectural historian. He did not have the same interest or certainly connections uh, to the art world. And so a kind of a, uh, a, a tie, an umbilical tie, one might say, to the art world was uh, was severed and, and the course didn't fully recover uh, from that. Also, it was the case, uh, perhaps one of the most interesting things that emerged from looking at the documents in the 1950s was that there was a growing consensus in the museum field that if what was needed mostly was connoisseurship, because in essence, by the 1950s, museums had gained a fairly coherent infrastructure of management. So young curators entering the field were not expected to run a whole museum from the moment they arrived, as they were indeed in the late 1920s. Rather, they were uh, expected to go into a department and, and develop that department, make acquisitions and so forth. So connoisseurship was really the most important thing. And to the extent that connoisseurship and formal art history, as we would call it, had infiltrated uh, doctoral programs, not just at Harvard, but across the country, the essential training for a curator itself had shifted into the 1950s to be available at many elite art history programs. So the distinctive edge that Harvard had uh, was uh, greatly uh, diminished. And uh, you see that sort of in the 1950s and 60s. So the sort of the theoretical interests that Sachs had brought into the class, should we have contemporary art? Should we have period rooms? What about education? The more theoretical aspects of the course uh, died away. The, what we would call museology was withdrawn gradually across the decades, leaving only the connoisseurial expertise training which was now generalized in the curriculum for uh, all graduate students. So there was a kind of dilution, if you will, uh, in, in, at Harvard, but also across the country. The same training could be had at Yale and New York University and uh, lots of places by the 50s and 60s. Um, and then uh, beginning in the 70s and 80s, you begin to come up against the emergence of what we might for want of a better word, describe as the new art history, the, the, the gradual uh, infiltration of uh, theory um, and interest in context and meaning uh, rather than strict object study. And uh, that posed a threat to a sort of an existential threat to the museum program and to the concept of, of connoisseurship as the basis of all graduate education. Uh, so the 1982 was the last year in, in which any form of museum training was offered at Harvard. Um, and it's often been tied to the, to the coming to Harvard of the um, Marxist social art historian, uh, T.J. Clark. Uh, his role in the demise of the program is greatly exaggerated, but it's an interesting kind of coincidence that his coming was the same year as, as the program's end. Uh, and so the, the, the rise of new art history, which looks, you know, with disdain on old fashioned connoisseurship, uh, caused a seismic shift in the field of art history itself. And I think it's that uh, it was the sense, the loss of those skills that has been felt uh, by the museum 
And it is to compensate for that loss that we today find programs that we alluded to earlier, funded by the Mellon Foundation, that seeks to re-inject the, the value of museum work back into uh, the graduate school uh, uh, curriculum. That kind of expertise, not taught by the faculty at universities, but it is still very important in museums. And so how do you bring those two things uh, together for the benefit of the uh, museum profession? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, if you look back in the 70s and 80s, there was a move to have uh, professors work at the same time as curators of major museums or even university museums at the same time, the dreaded joint appointment, um, which uh, doesn't really exist too much today because they're basically two full-time jobs. But we had this incidence in the 1970s and 80s where some of these things were sort of tried out. Um, but I think that was a moment where the other trends in art history, particularly new art history that you talk about, but also critical museology started to come up that yeah. those kinds of positions were not only professionally untenable, but also brought in uh, different kinds of arguments against uh, museums being a good thing. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and those kinds of issues also, I think, cause problems for trying to combine in individual people um, both museum education and, and traditional art history education in terms of contextual and theoretical versus connoisseurial expertise. Exactly. I would say that I think one thing that uh, if we're in a moment now where there is a concerted effort to revalidate museum work in the eyes of graduate programs and so forth, uh, and to bring the skills together, I think one thing that's missing that you, that, you know, was present, especially in the early Sachs years, was this discussion of, of, of museological issues. You mentioned you know, museum critique, which is really an offshoot of, of the new art history and, and the look at, you know, institutional structures uh, from the 70s and 80s onwards. And today, if we were to think about, well, how do we re redevelop the sort of museology, if you will, for, for museum curators, I think one of the pieces that is at risk of, of not being included is a a hard look at um, controversy, critical issues, uh, reflexive issues about uh, museum practice. I mean, basically a 21st century version of the conversations that Sachs had about hot button issues like contemporary art and period rooms. Because today, you know, the art history faculty is not teaching that material at the, on the university side. And it's not something that curators, uh, I think, uh, want to discuss actually or are, are unable to discuss. So one of the concerns I have is that um, the training that's happening right now um, uh, you know, leaves out sort of uh, uh, philosophical discussion, if you will, about what museums do and what they do well and what they don't do well. Yeah, I think in some ways that conversation almost has to take place um, in the academy <laughs> um, and not with curators and museum directors simply because uh, it does 
criticize in a way that is not so comfortable. And I think it's uh, difficult to have those kinds of conversations with people who are invested in what's happening in the museums. And I think to have that conversation in more of a safe space of a classroom environment or talking in a gallery with curators not present is a way to get into those issues uh, without really... um, having it be a critique of specific curators or specific museums that might take it too personally. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But at the same time, museology or museum studies is, is not an academic field, you know, so uh, the places that are doing the training of future curators do not um, have dedicated lines to people who are looking critically at exhibitions and museums. So it's kind of, it is something I agree with you that, uh, could be better taught at universities, but it's it's not being taught because it's not considered, uh, you know, a sort of a, a, a field unto itself on the academic side. Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of people who write critical museology are in anthropology departments or history departments in many cases. Um, so it's not so much in, in art history proper, definitely. So in thinking about, I I imagine a lot of different audiences for this book. Um, In general, I think obviously it's accessible to undergraduates and I would think graduate students with an interest in working in museums or even um, going into philanthropy or um, being academics themselves uh, would really learn a lot from reading your book. Do you imagine that um, if you were to think about what information ideas you hope would be Uh, different types of readers would take away from the book, be it students or curators or even the public who might not know that much about what went on behind the scenes in museums in the first part of the 20th century? What do you hope they'll take away from the book? I think the things that operated behind the scenes a century ago are still the things that operate behind the scenes. Many of the same issues, you know, of management of people, of, uh, you know, the, the ever-present need to deal with money uh, and art. Um, issues don't feel to me, in the broad sense, to have changed uh, a lot. So w- one value, perhaps, of, of uh, the book is that it, it, it raises to consciousness what was involved in setting up our museums in the first place. And that might prompt reflection as to the extent to which those um, motivations and essential needs are uh, still in place and the ways in which that history uh, conditions the, the, what museums can and, and cannot do uh, into the present. I, I do think there is great value in looking at, at structures like museums in this course uh, you know, in a, in a historical light, you know, uh, present day institutions are very much born of their own pasts and traditions. And it, it, uh, it behooves us, I think, to understand the, the nature of those uh, traditions, which are really sort of taken uh, for granted. So I think there is, that would be my, my hope for a main takeaway for, uh, on the part of uh, people who are interested in curatorial work. Um, People who are interested in art history, museums are fundamental to the history of art. So anyone interested in the history of, of, the, of the discipline uh, could stand to understand the, the role of museums in the formation of, of canons, for example, and uh, uh, the way in which museums mediate the uh, interpretation and dissemination of art uh, to uh, a very broad public. 
Wonderful. Well, Andrew, thanks uh, so much for being on the show today. We've taken up a lot of your time, but I really enjoyed hearing more about the book and I hope our listeners will as well. So thank you very much. Well, this was great. Thank you, Noelle. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk further about it. Thanks for listening to the New Books in Art podcast on the New Books Network. Be sure to check out other podcasts by going to newbooksnetwork.com. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.